and only. It's time for, it's time for Christmas, right? I mean, we just speed headlong right into Christmas. No. It, my joke in life of the church is one, once you hit Halloween, the year's over because then you're moving to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's just here before you know it. But So we, we in our house this week, we're looking at our Halloween decorations. We're like, well, I guess it's time to start getting ready for Christmas. So we started kind of thinking about Christmas. We were eating dinner together. We have a, one little Amazon thing. I went, Alexa, start playing Christmas music. And she, she started playing Christmas music. We were sitting there just eating food, listening to Christmas music. And I said, well... I guess it's time for Christmas, isn't it? We're heading on to it. Today's text made me think about Christmas. You're thinking to yourself, wow, our preacher's weird because that's got nothing to do with Christmas. But that text really, really made me think about Christmas. Because what is Christmas about at its core? You know, the life of the church, there are certain days that have, that have a resonance with us that draw us to God. You know, Christmas and Easter, really, there's something within our souls that want to be connected to God on those days. And Christmas is, is that beautiful holiday in the life of the church that speaks so much to our heart. And Christmas, at its core, is, is a beautiful story of how God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the creator of all that is, both seen and unseen, became human and dwelt among us. The big fancy seminary word we use for that is the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's the beginning of John chapter 1. The word, the very logos, the very being of God, God's very heart became wrapped in flesh and dwelt among us here as humans. That is the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation, that the very God of heaven became one of us, lived as we lived, think as we think, talked as we talked, experienced the whole gamut, the whole, the whole very nature of the human experience and emotion and everything. And I don't understand it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I understand, that I understand the depth of the incarnation. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I understand all that, me, all that it means to say that God became human. But if there's anything that captures the love of the Father for his children, it's that notion of the incarnation, that the very God of heaven, became one of us to save all of us. That love became wrapped in flesh so that we could know the power and the love of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I thought about that as I read that text this morning. There's that beautiful, it's a beautiful story. If you were like me when you were a kid, uh, kid, and you might have, might have done Bible drill or some type of Bible memory thing, you always wanted that passage there, there in John. Jesus wept. Even I can remember that one. I mean, come on, who can't remember that verse? That was, a, that was always a cheat verse for Bible drill. Jesus wept. But you know, the older I've gotten in my life, the more I've come to deeply appreciate that verse. See, because sometimes, sometimes we project upon God this notion of almost that Greek or Roman type of, of myth. That God is way up in heaven, 
removed from our human experience. That God is up in his heaven and up on his throne, and he, he is not touched by human pain. And that, to me, is the beauty of the incarnation. That, to me, is the beauty of that story. We do not serve a God who is foreign to our hurt. We do not serve a God who is foreign to our pain. We do not serve an uncaring or a cold or a distant God. We do not have a God that is a watchmaker that, that, that built creation and set it in motion and then took a step back. No, we serve a God that is intimate. We serve a God that is personal. We serve a God that walked among us that lived among us. We serve a God that has suffered as we suffer. We serve a God that faced rejection as we face rejection. We serve a God that faced pain as we face pain. And we serve a God that weeps as we weep. When our heart is broken, God's heart is broken. When our life feels torn asunder, God's heart is broken. We do not serve a cold and distant God, but we serve a God that is intimate and a God that keenly knows loss and a God that saw his very son suffer and die. Our God is not uncaring, and our God is not distant. And to me, that is one of the beauties of Christianity, the beauties of our faith, the beauties of our belief, is that our God is not far and distant, but our God is very intimate, and our God is very close, as close as our next heartbeat. I love that passage. Jesus wept. He was the resurrection, y'all. He was the way, the life, and the truth. And he was himself resurrection. And yet confronted with human loss, he wept. That's the God we serve. The God who weeps beside the tomb of his friends. The God that comforts the brokenness of his friends. The God that knows intimately our pain. I love the story of Lazarus. I love the story. Because I think this story paints for us some beautiful pictures of reality. First, I think this, this passage paints for us the reality of grief. You know, sometimes we get in such a rush after a loss to, uh, you've heard it said, get back to normal. Got to get back to normal. Got to get back to our routines. By the way, there is some comfort in that. There's some comfort in getting back to that. But sometimes we rush so quickly to get back to our routines that we do not give ourselves time to grieve. There is no weakness in tears. There is no weakness in grief. There is no weakness in sitting there and acknowledging your hurt or your pain or your loss. But in fact, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who holds all of creation together in his grief, wept, wept. Your grief hurts. That's why Paul said, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But Paul did not say, we do not grieve. We grieve 
our Lord grieved. And sometimes we get in such a rush to get through it that we don't take the time to acknowledge it and to admit our grief and to admit our pain and to admit our need and to admit our loss. And grief's a funny thing, y'all. I've had many members say, you know, I didn't cry at mama's funeral, and I thought that I would. Sometimes it didn't in that moment of loss that we grieve. Sometimes it's when you're riding down the road a few months later, and you hear a certain song on the radio, and you feel the tears coming, and you don't even know why, but you can't help it. Perhaps it's a a certain smell, a certain smell in the air. You go in the old home place and you open up the doors of the house and you smell it and you just, and you start crying and you can't explain why. For me, for me, it's chicken and dumplings. My granny made the best chicken and dumplings. She died in 98. And ever since then, I've never really loved chicken and dumplings. I'll eat them. But when I was a little boy, I loved them. I'd eat them all day long. But ever since she died, I just, I don't know. They never quite tasted the same. But it's funny, more recently I've been craving them some. And as I eat them, I still get a little sad every time I eat them. That's how grief works. Grief is not something you just get over. Grief becomes almost a part of you. It it doesn't mean it's got to overwhelm you. And it doesn't mean it's got to suck every fiber of your being. And it doesn't mean it's going to incapacitate you from all of life. But it just kind of becomes that new normal. And that's okay. That's all right. That's what Jesus experienced at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He grieved the death of one that he loved. And we can't truly heal from it. We can't truly live into it. We can't truly experience the healing that comes through Christ until we acknowledge it. Grief is not a weakness. Grief does not make you unchristian. Your tears do not mean you haven't gotten over it or that you don't have faith. It means that your life is different. And you grieve because the one who you love, you will not see again this side of glory. We grieve for ourselves because our lives are diminished. I I tell people grief is like a a scar. I think I've shared this story with you before, but it's really the best way I can think of to describe grief. Uh, Growing up, my... My favorite television show was a very deep and intellectual show that really had many theological mysteries to it, The Dukes of Hazard. And um, my first two dogs were named Bo and Luke. And I'm not joking. I had two golden retrievers named Bo and Luke. And I always liked how the, the, the Duke boys would run across and slide across the hood of the car. I thought that was cool. And so I used to try to do that with very little success when I was little. And one time I decided I was going to try to run through and jump through a barbed wire fence with my great athletic ability. So I get running and I jump headlong for the barbed wire fence. And I make it pretty good to hit my waist. And then my legs catch the barbed wire fence. And I've got this really cool scar to this day on my leg where I got caught by the barbed wire fence. Because those things bite, believe it or not. And um, if you saw it, you, you wouldn't even notice it. Like, you wouldn't even notice it. it wouldn't even, you wouldn't even see it. But, but I see it. But what's funny is to this day, to this day, if I, if I take my finger and go to that scar and push down real hard, 
you know what? Still hurts. That was 35 years ago. But if you touch that spot just right, 35 years later, it still hurts. That's grief. You're going to heal. You're going to feel grace. You're going to feel resurrection. You're going to feel love and light and laughter again. You will. That, you will. But sometimes something's going to touch that spot just right and still going to hurt. And that's okay. That's the reality of grief. We see in this text as well, we see the reality of our need for community. Because look at, look at what happens with Mary the entire time. That her community has there been there with her. They're crying with her. They're weeping with her. Mary and Martha aren't grieving alone. And you know, after a death, there's part of us. Let's be honest. We all want to draw the curtains back, don't we? We want to be alone. And that's okay. But y'all, we can't do that. We, we, we've got to allow those who love us to come and be with us. I mean, we're Southerners. We grieve with a casserole. That's what we do. We show love by fried chicken, you know? And we may not want, we may not want those people coming into our lives that moment. We may want to just lock the door and shut the door and keep them out. But our soul needs them. We need somebody to walk beside us and tell us that we're not alone. We need somebody to wipe away our tears. We need somebody to hold our hands. We need the church, y'all. Believe me, the church is an imperfect organization. But we need a group of people around us to love us when we're weak and broken and afraid. In the midst of our grief, we need someone to encapsulate, to incarnate, to wrap Jesus' love in flesh and show us that we're not alone, even in our grief. We need our community. But likewise, for us as the church, we need to be the community. I don't know if it, the, the shooting in, in, in Pittsburgh last week, really, that one got to me, y'all. More so than most of them. I think it's because I still have a lot of Jewish friends from the Delta. And that one just, that one bothered. I, I, they all got to me more than most of the shootings we've had recently. That one got to me. And someone this week shared a, a thing on Facebook that I shared. It was talking about uh, the Jewish concept of sitting Shiva. How when someone has died for seven days, those who love them go to their house and they sit with them. And they aren't there to talk. See, they're there to simply be present in comfort. And if the person grieving needs to say something, you let them say it. If they need to yell, you let them yell. If they need to spit, you let them spit. You let them do whatever they need to do because it's not about you. It's about the person grieving. But we don't, we don't like silence. We want to have the right answer. We don't like sitting there. We want to speak. We don't like silence. Like that was really awkward. We didn't like that. You're supposed to talk now, preacher, not be quiet. But to the brokenhearted, there's no words that's going to take away the pain. 
The balm to their hurt is our presence. We want magic words. Y'all, as a preacher, I've held the hand of many a dying person. I've been on the side of tragedy. And y'all, what I wouldn't give for magic words to make it all go away. What I wouldn't give for magic words to stop the pain. But those, do, those words don't exist. God's good. The resurrection happens. We believe that. When somebody's hurting, when they're grieving, they just want somebody to hold their hand and tell them they love them. People in grief need the community, especially, I believe, the community of church. But we as the church, we've got to be that community. We've got to realize when someone's grieving, it's not about us. It's not about us, but it's about them and how we can comfort them in that moment. This text shows us the the reality of our need for community. But this text also shows us the good news, the reality of resurrection. Because guess what? Lazarus didn't stay dead. C.S. Lewis says, Lazarus was the first martyr of the Christian faith. Because the Lord, he was in heaven, and the Lord called him back, and then he died again. When he died at the end of his life. Lazarus didn't die. Resurrection won. We are a people of hope and a people of resurrection. And and we grieve because our lives are diminished. But we do not grieve for the departed. We feebly struggle. They in glory shine. They are alive in the Lord. And yes, we are saddened. And yes, we are diminished. And yes, we are weakened. And yes, we are sad. But they are with the Lord. And they have heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. They have received their reward. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because we have a hope in Christ Jesus. This life in this world is not the end. There's something better. There's something bigger. There's something more life-giving. For there's going to come a time, y'all, where there will be no more shootings in synagogues, in churches. There's going to come a time when there will be no more cancer. There's going to come a time when there will be no more sickness, pain, and death. There's going to come a time when he will wipe away every tear from our eye. When there will be no more loss and hurt and fear. There will be no more hungry children. There will be no more young widows. There will be no more grieving children. There will be no more forsakenment or abandonment. But we will all be with the Lord, and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. That time is coming. And for those who are with the Lord, they have achieved it now. And they're just waiting on us to get there. We don't grieve for them. We grieve for us. But this text shows us that there is a resurrection and that this life is not the end. I got a good friend of mine. He's actually spoken here before. He's a double amputee. He lost both his legs as a young man in college in a tragic accident. He always tells me, he said, Andy, one day I'm going to have legs again. I think that's right. One day I'm going to sound good when I sing. Today's not today. Amen? Well, one day I'm going to sound good when I sing. Yeah, we believe in resurrection. This text shows us that reality. And so I think it's fitting on this All Saints Sunday we kind of conclude our service with a service of communion. You know, the Lord says... Think about it. Of all the things Jesus could have given us on the last night, Lord's Supper, what did he give us? He gave us a command to love our neighbor, but he gave us a meal. 
I mean, we're Southerners. If we don't get to eat in heaven, what's the point of going? He gave us a meal. And so today, when we come and receive communion, we join with those who are already in glory, that are already receiving the fullness of God. We join with the wedding feast of the Lamb. I get to think about my granny's chicken and dumplings. That one day she's going to wait for me in heaven. We get to unite with those who in glory shine now and in this moment, in this sacred moment, when we come now to receive the body and the blood, this is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the meal we will forever enjoy with the Lord. We commune. We commune with each other and with the Lord and what the church is always called the church triumphant. Those saints who have earned their reward. This meal is not an individual act, but it is an act of community. And in this meal, in this breaking of the bread and the sharing of the juice, we experience the healing grace of God. We know, we know, we will see them again. For they are with the Lord. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. And in this moment, and in all moments, may we know the power of hope. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the power of resurrection, the power of life. God, we thank you, God, for the reality of your healing hand, even in grief. Father, we know that nothing can separate us from your love. Neither life, nor death, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Thank you for that love that knows no end. We love you. We ask it in, you, in this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I invite you now to turn with me to page 12 in the front of your hymnal for our service of Holy Communion. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and who seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. And we have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, God of Abraham and Sarah, of Miriam and Moses, of Joshua and Deborah, of Ruth and David, of the priests and the prophets, God of Mary and Joseph, God of the apostles and the martyrs, God of our mothers and fathers. 
God of our children to all generations. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night when he gave himself for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Renew our communion with all your saints, especially those whom we name before you. Lynn Ware. Alice Maritain. Betty Scruggs. Harriet Frazier. Henry McKay.
Ruth Lee. Charles Kosky. Ronnie Wood. Mary Trossett. Jim Baker. as well as the others that we name aloud from the congregation this morning. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, strengthen us to run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other. We want to minister to all the world. Till Christ comes in final victory, we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, your Holy Church, all honor and glory is yours, now, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to invite those forward who will be assisting with communion to receive. Uh, we'll invite you to come as you're directed by the usher. We'll start with our balcony so they can receive first. Also, be mindful that our far station to the left on the organ side, it will be a gluten-free station for anyone in need of gluten-free options. We invite you to receive there. But know this, this table does not belong to me. This table does not belong to St. Matthew's. This table does not belong to any religious group. But this table is Christ's table. And all who wish to come are welcome. This time we're going to invite those forward who will be assisting with communion.